0: Hello and welcome to Oh God, What Now? This week broadcasting from inside a lift at the BBC. I'm Dorian Linsky and it's all kicking off. Let's meet the panel. Naomi Smith is Chief Executive at Besser Britain. Hello, Naomi.
1: Hello, hello, hello.
0: In Labour or ex-Labour news, Jeremy Corbyn has now been without the whip for over a year and there are rumours that he's going to turn his peace and justice project into a proper political party rather than stand as an independent in Islington North. This was a story in The Telegraph, so we should ask, do you think this will happen? And what could it achieve?
1: Dorian, it's incredibly kind of you to open the entire show, giving me a platform to talk about proportional representation. (laughs) Um, (laughs) This is not Um, the idea. I regret.
0: I retract the question.
1: (laughs) I mean, look, despite all of the kind of like back channel attempts that that we've been hearing about to negotiate his return to the Parliamentary Labour Party, He he himself is saying, "I, I just don't believe that I'm going to have the whip reinstated before the next election, meaning that he would have to stand as an independent if he wants to carry on as an MP. Um, And of course, his allies, of which there are many, especially on Twitter, believe he has got enough of a personal vote to to win Islington North, where of course, he has been an MP for 40 years, uh, without backing of the Labour Party. He's not the only person potentially (laughs) uh, launching their own party, because of course, Gina Miller, darling of the Remain movement, as we record this on a Wednesday, the next day uh, tomorrow, she is going to be launching her true and fair party remains to be seen whether the timing of that is good or not in terms of getting press coverage uh, with everything else that's going on this week. Under a first-past-the-post system, it is going to be incredibly difficult for new parties to break through. We've seen that with the Tiggers and the Change UKers and the Renews and various other incarnations within recent years. And of course, you know, the the STP Alliance back in the day so he certainly as an independent would get returned probably no problem um I think it would be really do you think
0: I'm I'm in Islington North he's my mm. MP uh, in this strange uh, position of uh, at one point having um volunteered for him and now possibly going to be volunteering against him I mean do you th- do you think that's a guarantee I'm surprised people are so confident
1: oh it's not a certainty it's not a certainty at all um but he does command um a a more robust, shall we say, personal vote than say Dominic Grieve did in, in Beaconsfield. Um, so it's it's certainly not beyond the realms of possibility that he he could do it as an independent. But very, very difficult for him to run a national campaign and and hope to get much cut through. Of course it could have the cut through of just making life difficult for Labour in marginal seats where, you know, even even taking a few hundred votes off the Labour candidate would would let the Tory back in or or, or take the seat from Labour.
0: Ian Dunt is a at The Eye. Hi, Ian. Hello. Um, the Telegraph... Uh, promo for The Telegraph. Uh, reports yeah. that the government is looking to end free lateral flow tests in the next few weeks. Again, this might not actually happen. Nadeem Sahawi has denied the story, but other ministers haven't ruled it out. Um, they're said to have cost £6 billion so far. Apart from saving money, what would the justification be at this point for... Because if you make them no longer free, then you're essentially... People are not going to get tested, right, unless... Unless they need one for sort of entrance to a concert or whatever. They're just not going to do it.
2: Yeah, well, exactly. So, I mean, basically, it's this insane false economy. I mean, you've got most countries in the world, I mean, do not give away these things for free. And what it does is there might be situations maybe if you're seeing your elderly parents where you do it. But most of the time when you're going to go out and see a bunch of people in town, you can see some friends or have to go to the dentist. you're, You're almost certainly not going to pay for the privilege of doing it. It's hard enough as it is now. I don't know if you've tried to get these things. You know, it's like trying to get a five-star meal. It's, it's really very difficult. Last time I, we had this thing, you know, the government sends you this kind of code and you go to the pharmacy and the pharmacists are just like, yeah, maybe if you turn up at like 4.30, you've got to wait around and sometimes the shipment comes around and it's like, this is what it used to be like when I bought drugs. <laughs> you know, it shouldn't be this It's like hard. getting
0: nylons during the blitz, isn't it?
2: <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, it's already very, very difficult. It is, I mean, so it is to save money and I think also to create the sense of normality returning. It is an insane false economy. I mean, you take, for instance, right now, like the reason that I and my household feels comfortable going out to spend money and to go for meals and to go to the cinema is precisely because we can do those tests before we go out. Mm. So actually, feel like, well, we're sort of doing the right thing. So actually getting, if, the harder you make it to access them, I think the worse it is for the economy. But I don't think that kind of short-sightedness is unlikely to have much effect on them.
0: Do you think that will happen? I mean do you think this is one of those things that's definitely gonna happen, or is it like a trial balloon? Because the reaction has not been very warm.
2: Yeah, it's impossible to work out listening to them. Um so Zahari came out and sort of said, absolutely not, and blah blah then the next day Gove comes out and uses that phrase, does not recognize, does not recognize I mean imagine if your answer to something was no. There's no scenario which yeah. you would say, I do not recognise what's just been said. You just wouldn't say it. Um, and then went on this sort of long, convoluted explanation with a lot of, you know, but in the end, we're going to have to. So The truth is, it sounds a lot like when they talk about the vaccine passports or the way they used to talk about Brexit technicalities of just like, do they actually know who can tell? Do they actually know that they're doing this to try and muddy the water and test things out? Who can
0: possibly tell? At the moment, nobody knows. Returning this week is Sarah Gibbs, comedy writer for shows such as Have I Got News For You and The News Quiz, and author of the memoir Drama Queen. Hi, Sarah.
3: Hi, thank you so much for having me back.
0: Well, we'll be talking about parties later, uh, but there's another one coming up. The plans for the Queen's Platinum Jubilee have been announced, and in extremely British news, the first event is a competition to invent a new pudding, judged by Mary Berry, (laughs) to bring the nation together. Uh, Others include street parties and tours of Sandringham. Not to be bleak. But this is likely to be her last uh, significant jubilee. Do you think that it will therefore have a sort of elegiac vibe, as indeed her Christmas message did? I thought this year, as everyone, of course, watched it.
3: Gosh, that's a bit bleak. Cause it's kind of like a, a pre-funeral that she gets to attend, and like, oh no, like a sort of um, farewell, like
0: Elton John's farewell tour
3: yeah maybe it's i mean it's the first significant event without prince philip um so there's going to be you know there's going to be that sort of solem- solemnity to it as well um and of course you know there there's covid disruptions but yeah i think you know i, I she'll certainly be aware of of the uh, the significance of the occasion i'm sure it won't be lost on on people and uh you know what what better it feels so bleak to be like this is her last hurrah it feels <laughs> like I'm giving her a death sentence she might live to 120 and and be laughing at us all who knows
0: do you have any ideas for a new pudding <laughs>
3: <laughs> I mean that is the only part of the celebration that I'm remotely excited about because you've given the autistic girl a party to talk about <laughs> 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 Hooray, a party. um new pudding Ooh. um I I did think about something the other day that was sort of like a, a combination between like Angel Delight and a milkshake. I wanted to do something with froth milk and Angel Delight. And then I it sounded so disgusting in my head that I talked myself out of it. So I don't think I'm a contender <laughs> for the prize. and I, I wouldn't want to uh, poison Mary Berry with my attempt. Um, I am excited for the flyover because that's something I can join in from home because I live right under a flight path um, by Heathrow. So they're going to be on their balcony waving at the at the flyover, and I can just stick my head out the window uh, at roughly every fifteen minutes. So
0: every day is a flyover for you. It is. <laughs> it's an exciting it life.
3: It's accessible. It's nice.
0: This week, the MP Standards Watchdog has said there won't be any further investigation into the flat refurbishment at number 10. But there's still a leak that needs to be fixed, the one that keeps sending evidence of Downing Street parties to ITV. We will discuss the latest revelations, the scandal that won't go away, and uh, the perpetual question, will Boris Johnson go? And we will profile Foreign Secretary Liz Truss in a year in which she might end up in number 10. Plus, in the extra bit for Patreon backers, Lords Gite, Evans and Moan are in the news, but who would we appoint to the upper house?
1: Before we start, a quick update on our live shows coming up in Leeds and Brighton. As you know, the Omicron wave has caused all sorts of problems with live events and ticket sales. So we've decided to err on the side of caution and rearrange the dates. The Live at Leeds show that was planned for Saturday, the 29th of January, will now take place on Sunday, the 3rd of April instead. And our Brighton show, scheduled for Wednesday, the 2nd of February, goes back a bit further to Wednesday, the 8th of June the south coast is of course much nicer in june (laughs) apologies for any inconvenience but we thought it better to change the dates sooner rather than later tickets are still available and patreon backers your discount still works so search oh god what now leeds city varieties for the leeds gig and go to the oldmarket.com to find out about our brighton show we're looking forward to seeing you on the new dates as the grand not london tour finally gets underway
0: thanks naomi First this week, on Monday, ITV released another scoop about the series of parties that took place at Downing Street in 2020. Boris Johnson's private secretary, Martin Reynolds, sent an email in May of that year to dozens of staff inviting them to bring their own booze to a drinks party in the Garden of Number 10, right in the thick of lockdown. You might remember at that time you were allowed to meet just one friend outdoors and only if you stayed two metres apart. Uh, Meanwhile, it was like Studio 54 over there. (laughs) (laughs) The Mets say they are now finally in contact with the cabinet office over the events. As we record, Martin Reynolds is still in a job and Johnson has full confidence in him. Uh Uh-oh. Ian, let's start with PMQs. Uh, This is obviously going to be a tough gig. Uh, Johnson did admit that he'd gone to the party, but that he didn't think it was a party. Mm. Um, How did it go down? And was there like, was there anything else that he could have said?
2: Didn't go down very well. Did it not? No. <laughs> <laughs> it's, been a, it's been quite a good day. I can't stop smiling. I've been smiling all day. Because mostly any kind of anger's completely gone now. At this point, I'm just having a really good time. And I think it would be foolish to even pretend for a moment that I don't have a tremendous sense of moral reassurance just by watching this absolute lying bastard get his comeuppance for being an absolute lying bastard. I have to say, I mean, looking at it, this is my, obviously, my professional political analysis is taking place right now. Um, Looking at it, I thought today, today is the moment, I think, that I thought chances are Tories aren't going to have a majority at the next election.
0: Hmm. You
2: just start, I mean, looking at where he is, he is boxed in by his own bullshit. I mean, he came up with, as you sort of alluded to, the only thing he could possibly say, which is, yeah, it happened. Yeah, I went. But I didn't really know it was a party, you know, which, of course, is a fucking absurdity of the highest order. You know, to say, like, you're attending a party that your office has arranged in your own garden but you're somehow aware that a party is taking place and you think it's a work meeting. Like either you have much more exciting work meetings than I do or you have much more boring parties but it has to be one of the two.
0: Maybe they just drink at all the work meetings. Maybe that's yeah, his maybe, next. Maybe. Maybe that's his next thing is that he has to <laughs> kind of introduce this new policy of just drink, of doing everything drunk.
2: That would explain a lot of the policies that we've seen over the last two years. And like, but it, it was just so weak. It was so weak and you could see it in his face. Like he looked ashen he looked broken the benches behind him just completely silent they don't have a fucking leg to stand on either i mean it's not like they're sitting there making a moral calculation about the kind of guy that they brought in you know they knew who he was they knew what he was and now suddenly it's blown up in their face all of the lies are still there but the popularity is gone and that as a spectacle was a profoundly satisfying and enjoyable thing for me to watch
1: it's the only time i regret them wearing masks I mean, the politicians don't wear masks for the rule, but today they all happily donned them to disguise the pain on their faces and the gritty Huge teeth hats. and the clenched jaws. A number of
0: MPs have decried the party. Some activists and now Douglas Ross MP have explicitly called for Johnson to go. The word untenable is flying around. Why is this word? I mean, the revelations in December were obviously pretty terrible. They gave Labour a lead that, you know, remains to this day. Is this worse because the party the timing of the party was worse or is it just that there is another one and that it's cumulative
2: yeah, I think there's a bunch of things going on there. The first one is I do think anything that took place in the first lockdown is many orders of magnitude worse than anything that took place in two or three. So we're more relaxed because we were more used to it. And frankly, and let, let's not beat around the bush, lots of people had started to stretch the rules themselves a bit by the time they got to the third one and were getting away with what they could. The, the first one, hmm. we were still scared. We were genuinely like, you know, I don't want to go anywhere near any member of my family. I don't want to sort of infect anyone. People were genuinely thinking about others. And of course, they were going through some absolutely appalling things. So I think by virtue of being in the first lockdown, it's smart. The fact that he was there puts it in a qualitatively different category to anything. Else. You know, if we're talking about Allegra Stratton, there was still, we still weren't quite at the point of it being demonstrable that he was there. Now, he came to the Commons today and said himself, I was there. The third part is that, remember, this is breaking the defensive walls that he had put up against the previous scandal you know, the last time they were talking about parties, they said all the rules have been kept to at number 10, you know, third some. now it's obvious that that is not the case. So it's a lie within a lie within a lie, just tumbling into oblivion. That's where we are right now. They have no defences left. No thinking person, especially after all these weeks, could watch it and come to any other conclusion than the fact that he is the most grotesque, inveterate, Constant, perpetual liar. So on that basis, it does sort of feel like it's yes, the straw that broke the camel's back, but there is a qualitative and a quantitative difference to what is going on here.
0: Yeah, and the camel is a bastard <laughs> <laughs> in this case. Um, Naomi Johnson was trying before PMQs to say that he couldn't say whether he attended the party because that was down to Sue Gray's ongoing investigation, which is the old <laughs> trick—is that you set up an <laughs> and have what the
1: fuck what? It's like, what the fuck? Oh, I see. Yeah, yeah, okay. (laughs) All right, Um, yeah.
0: (laughs) Now, Sue Gray uh, replaced Simon Case who stepped down after he was accused of hosting a party himself (laughs) at the fucking non-stop (laughs) 24-7 Bacchanal (laughs) that is our government. Um, Now, a 2015 BBC profile called her the most powerful person you've never heard of, and I must admit I had not heard of her until Mm. uh, long past 2015. Who is she? And Is she the kind of person you trust to sort this out?
1: So Sue Gray is a pub landlady. In the 1980s, uh, she left the civil service um, to buy a pub in what is sometimes referred to as bandit country. So the border between uh, Northern Ireland and the Republic. And, and that was obviously at the height of the Troubles. Um, and as the Telegraph reported yesterday, and this yes, we are not sponsored by the Telegraph as much as we keep mentioning them on this show. They said that if, if Johnson needed evidence that his Inquisitor-in-Chief is no pushover, then being landlady of a pub in Newry close to the Irish border during the Troubles shows that she's no soft touch damn straight. As well as being a pub lady, of course, she is a very senior civil servant in Kaboff. And she is the government's director general of its proprietary and ethics team. And she reports and, and advises staff on things like how to destroy emails with a, a double deletion to stop information becoming public through freedom of information requests. She led the investigation into Andrew Mitchell in what was called Plebgate, when uh, people might remember he, he, he was alleged to have called a, a police officer, a pleb. Uh, She was also the person responsible for sacking uh, Conservative MP Damien Green uh, because of his inaccurate and misleading, her word, statements over what he knew about claims porn was found on his computer. And even if she
0: finds that Johnson broke the rules, he still gets to decide his his own fate. She can't, like, sack him. How important do you think such a finding would be? Or indeed, uh, you know, any findings by the, the police? On a sort of on a, on a political level, do you think that that would be you know enough to kind of uh, well I mean God knows what's going to happen over yeah, the next couple of days exactly. but you know <laughs>
1: yeah I mean I think I think that's what, I think you're right to sort of caveat that Dorian at the moment events are moving so quickly who knows if this. He'll still be in post by the time she completes her investigation. The Conservative MPs are going to be much more bothered by the mood of the public on their doorsteps than the outcome of that uh, internal investigation. And I don't think his performance at, at PMQs today will have done anything to reassure voters. It's not obvious when her report will conclude either. It, they're sort of briefing that it, it almost certainly won't be this week, might be next week. And during that time, the 1922 committee chair letters may may well have gone in in the, in the order of magnitude that they need to to topple him. And Douglas Ross, leader of the Conservatives in Scotland, has not only called for Johnson to resign, but he has said that he's going to put his letter into Graham Brady. In terms of what her inquiry will do, um, it's going to tell us what happened, but I don't think it's going to settle the issue. It'll be a very factual account about the parties in Downing Street and may not even assign any individual blame, but it might refer disciplinary action to others. It it might touch on the role of the Prime Minister. There's there's been rumours today from Simon Hoare MP that, that he had... I think it was him anyway, um, thought that it was a party that had been designed to thank Dominic Raab for holding the fort while Johnson was in hospital and to welcome Johnson back into number 10 uh, after his recovery. But it isn't in in Gray's place to judge actual behaviour. So the bare facts alone could be very damaging. And how she sets them out, the language used might give us an indication of her view of the seriousness. But you're right. You know, she doesn't actually be judge, jury and executioner on it.
0: Can you imagine if you're Martin Reynolds or Boris Johnson losing your job over the desire to thank Dominic Raab? <laughs> <laughs> uh, tragic.
2: No, he did, he no, did a okay. kind of a subtle shift today because in terms of finding out, did he break the rule? I mean, they obviously did break the rules. It's very. It would be inconceivable that you would rule anything else, but he shifted it into the onto the concept of intention. Right. It was like, well, yeah, sure, I was there, but I thought it was a work thing. Mm. And then, you know, I should have, I should have realized it would look, you fools that think that bringing your own bottle somehow indicates party. I should have realized that you fools would come to that, you know, simple-minded, you know, conclusion. But of course, I, that wasn't my intention. The thing is, civil, it's, it's quite hard to imagine a world in which a civil servant concludes something about the intention.
0: Mm -hmm. of the Prime
2: Minister rather than the actions of the Prime Minister. And that, I suspect, is what they think could be their exit. And
0: everybody knows, of course, that if you uh, break the law but uh, didn't intend to, (laughs) um, that's a defence. Over 100 people, Sarah, were invited to Reynolds Fest 2020 and about 40 people went. Do they have any excuse for not leaking this before now? I mean, there's a lot of people who just sat on this.
3: I mean it does sort of knock me down off my conspiracy theory high horse because I always say like if there's really a conspiracy like someone (laughs) would have leaked it at some point like the amount of people who know versus what the public knows etc now I'm like am I a lizard person (laughs) (laughs) what is real um yeah I I mean I guess you know people might be afraid for their jobs which is you know if you're in a lesser position being a whistleblower is never easy but it it is incredible to me that the out of you know the 100 people who knew about it the 40 people who are in attendance that nobody had the sort of moral backbone or the outrage or the the impetus to go and make this information public it it, it does make you worry about the, the character of the people who are at the heart of government not that that wasn't evident before, but, you know, even more so that there's not one, there's not one conscience among them.
0: And there are lots of exciting rumours about uh, who, who's leaking this stuff. I remember people were talking about the angle, you know, they was a prudering the uh, angle of the photo of the garden party before. Um, now people are going, oh, maybe it was Allegra Stratton or maybe it was Dominic Cummings and Lee Kane, is it? Yeah. Do you think, Sarah, that that would change How we saw the story, if we knew this sort of political dimension, if it was one of the kind of, if it was one of the real rotters, you know, rather than some noble whistleblower, but somebody that was just like, you know, perhaps an ally of one of the people that might replace Johnson.
3: Would it change things for us nerds? Would would it change change things for
0: the public? (laughs) (laughs) Who cares about the public?
3: No. Um, for you know for for political nerds maybe I don't know I don't think it would change a great deal it might make them you know I I think anything anything like this you have to approach with a degree of cynicism and anyone who's doing anything in in sort of politics is going to have some sort of an agenda but having any kind of agenda that doesn't negate the facts it doesn't change what they did um It still happened, regardless of the motivations of making it public. And I certainly don't think the public's going to care who leaked it. I don't think they're going to know who, you know, who these people are necessarily, or apart from, you know, maybe a big name like Dominic Cummings. I don't think it's going to have that kind of cut through with them.
0: Now, this has kind of got lost a bit in the Malay, but the High Court has just ruled the government's use of a so-called VIP lane to award contracts for the supply of PPE to two companies in 2020 was unlawful. Some commentators think there should be more outrage over the corruption, which obviously involves vast sums of money, than the parties. Why do you think that the parties have been so explosive? We are constantly saying, you know, why doesn't this scandal hurt Boris Johnson? You know, why don't people care about X or Y? Now they really care. What do you think it is that has sort of touched the nerve? people can relate to a
3: party. They couldn't go to a party. They couldn't go and see their dying relatives. They couldn't meet up with a friend. They couldn't go to the pub. They couldn't do anything. We were effectively, you know, we were all locked inside our houses, going stir crazy and making huge sacrifices. You can relate to that. You can't really, like, corruption is a bit boring, isn't it? And and y and, and, like, it's not like, <laughs> oh, I missed out on giving a dodgy contract to my mates so and now he's done it. It's, it's, a, it's the element of the one rule for them and, and, and another rule for us you know I I don't I don't want to give a dodgy PPE contract to my friends so it it doesn't have the same sort of stab of injustice
0: don't knock it till you tried it (laughs) Um, but yeah I think there is a comprehensibility issue that you can really explain what the scandal is here in one sentence whereas to start explaining to someone what happened what a VIP in, in PPE procurement is sort of as soon as you're explaining you know that most people aren't really listening. Not listeners to this show, (laughs) I hope they are. (laughs) Because we do quite a lot of explaining. But, you know, if you're really talking about cutting through people that just don't care about politics. Naomi, what were we... I mean, I looked at what I was doing on May 20th and it appeared to be nothing. (laughs) I was was updating my COVID news diary and probably doing a jigsaw and some homeschooling and not seeing anybody. Does anyone have any, any potent memories of... You don't have to mention, obviously, if you are attending a party.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Well, I I was attending a party because uh, the 20th of May is the birthday of somebody in my family. And it was their 40th birthday. And yeah, I mean, I remember having to do yet another goddamned awful Zoom drinks. Um, and having those sort of slightly awkward overlapping conversations and people not quite knowing when to speak and people pretending they were having such a lovely time <laughs> stuck in the same living room they'd been in for weeks and weeks and weeks and weeks and weeks by then. Um, and yeah, and it all being a really damp squib and just feeling really, really sorry for the person whose 40th it was uh, that was meant to be in a cinema. and We were going to hire out the whole cinema and we were going to uh, put it to a vote of all of our friends and family as to which film would would get watched um and then oh, one God, of the really three favorite idea. films that's would be great. shown and yeah all of that we didn't do um so yeah i do i do remember what i was doing and and we were abiding by the rules and drinking on zoom
0: ian finally um i mean this does seem like kind of i suppose small, small beer uh today but lest we forget a scandal classic <laughs> <laughs> Uh, Lord Gite has cleared Johnson of wrongdoing over the Downing Street refurb and the Parliamentary Standards Commissioner Catherine Stone has said there won't be a further investigation into that. What's the basis here? Do you think there's a sort of injustice has been done or are their hands tied? Like, what's the state of play? We
2: don't know why she's come to that conclusion. We can't even see the letter that she sent. She can investigate whatever she likes. And and she's pretty independent-minded. She clearly decided not to. And it's all pretty sloppy stuff when you think, you know, these messages, not released, the guy when he was doing the inquiry, and that show Johnson talking to the person who ultimately gave him the money while saying that, oh, I don't know who was going to give him the money. I mean, it's all just utter, utter sludge. The thing is, it kind of, and I don't want to be too jaded about it, but it sort of doesn't matter right now. Because yeah. on, the, on the first basis, it's like, from what we've seen, it's so obvious what he has done morally and then politically it's so obvious that it wasn't really causing him that much damage. Now there's this other thing happening mm-hmm. now where it's obvious what he's done morally and it's obvious that it really is doing him fucking damage. So it's sort of, I think you can almost extend this really to what's going on in the main, in the gray inquiry. Cause I just don't think it really matters that much. What, she says she's not going to come out and, and say oh you know he's he he intended to do it he's done it and he's not going to, he's not going to resign on base of it. it's not going to happen but it sort of doesn't matter because the damage man the fucking damage he's taking right now i mean honestly i've, I've you know we used to have these conversations about who who would go and i guess we'll talk about this in a minute with Truss and roz would always say look the main thing is get rid of johnson because he's he has got whether we like it or not he's got that magic yeah. thing you know he's he's really hard to damage and i totally took that on board i totally agreed I just think this week was when I just, I think I probably started shifting and just thought, no, you know what? Like, if you want to get rid of a Tory government, probably the best thing that can happen now is him just dragging his yeah. bloody carcass Completely. over the rest Completely. of it. Yeah.
1: Completely.
0: Well, we will definitely be talking about that in the next section. Stay tuned. <laughs> <laughs> Now, for a question from one of our Patreon backers in the return of But Your Emails. Don't forget, you can sign up to back us from just £2 a month to get episodes early, bonus podcasts, and much more, including the right to send us an email. (laughs) You you lucky bastard. (laughs) bastard. (laughs) No, just jumping into our replies on Twitter. (laughs) No. Like, you actually have access to our sacred inbox. Gareth Hayes asks, what is the best party you've been at, legal or otherwise, and which party do you wish you had attended but didn't, couldn't?
1: I mean, I've been to some bad parties, but none so bad that I thought they were a work meeting. Um, (laughs) (laughs) It it, it is worth saying.
2: (laughs) This is such an embarrassing answer. But I just sort of feel, and this can't be true, and I bet if I looked at a CCTV of the party happening, it wouldn't have been that great, but... You know those first parties you went to when you were 14, 15 years old? The first time you got drunk, probably the first time you you met someone that liked you, all of that kind of stuff. Those are mythical in my head because it's just the first time. I've
0: never met anyone who liked me, so I don't know what
2: (laughs) (laughs) what you mean. (laughs) It'll come, it'll come any okay. day now. Right. But like, you know, those were those kind of formative teenage parties. And I mean, they are. And so if I was really honest, and this is a sort of deeply embarrassing, but they probably, if I was of like my favourite parties, they pretty much all happened when I was 14. It was all
0: downhill <laughs> after that.
2: <laughs>
0: Sorry, you said you, you were sort of uh, party sceptic. Is this a trick question for you?
3: <laughs> <laughs> it is, but I did have one party which I liked because I got to control it which was my 29th, which was the year before my diagnosis. Um, and, in hindsight, we could have diagnosed me on the basis of this party because to ensure that everyone had a good time, I made a playlist where I calculated the beats per minute so that they got progressively faster so that people <laughs> would want to dance because I, I didn't know how else to make people have a good time. Um, and uh, and I just Did went work, around the though? evening. Did it like, work? No. Oh, <laughs> no. the music got faster and faster and people just stood <laughs> around with their drinks talking. And I, I was just like, come on, guys. Look, can't you feel <laughs> the <something>? music? <laughs> Doof, 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 doof. I've manufactured this especially. Why aren't you enjoying yourselves? But I had a great time because I was telling everyone what to do. Um, <laughs> and I knew everybody. And, and it was in a sort of dark basement. Um, yeah, it was, it was the perfect autistic party. Um, too loud for me to actually have to make conversation.
1: Brilliant. <laughs> my, my best party was my 21st. Um, it was legendary. It is still talked about to this day a few years later by all the friends that were there any time more than one of them meets up at another, you know, event that I host or whatever, they, they, even if they haven't seen each other for a few years, they'll they'll always reference back to that night. Um, I can't disclose any more details uh, (laughs) as to what actually happened, but it was, it was a phenomenally good night. And that's the only time I've hosted a party and enjoyed it. I generally think I have a better time when I'm not the one in control of worrying about people having a good time or not. And and that build up, is anyone even going to come to my party? Like that, that hour or so before it is horrible. I'm still like that now with events that I do for Best Britain and we invite lots of people to them. About an hour before I have the fear that actually no one's going to come and it's going to be awful. So I don't enjoy hosting, but I love attending. And what you got to do is spread a rumor
3: that someone famous is coming. That's what I do every time. <laughs> someone really, really famous, I like, can't say who it is. Um, and then if they don't see someone famous there, they assume that they just don't know who the famous person is and they don't want to say, it and it's too awkward. So, <laughs> yeah.
0: Well, the problem is, even though I have fond memories of teenage parties, I used to sort of spiral between kind of like just, you know, real extreme introversion, <laughs> stroke, depression, <laughs> and kind of manic oh. extroversion, stroke alcoholism <laughs> so it was kind of like they were quite a ride and and the one because at the moment i have been looking back at my previous career you know sort of when i used to go and, you know cover music and go on the road with bands and stuff like that and the one that i still find amazing like that that even even happened was there was like a it was a few years ago there was a uh after a u2 tour there was a big party and it was the only time I'd been somewhere where like everyone was like I was the only person who wasn't famous and you could literally turn a corner and it was like, there's Mick Jagger <laughs> or like go out for a fag. Oh, I'm having a fag with Idris Elba <laughs> or there's like Matt Damon, Damien Hurst, the guy that designed the iPod. And it was just like this magical thing. And I just thought this is, and that's like, I haven't even got, like, I was on my phone. I was so cool that I was on my phone writing down the names of everyone (laughs) who was there. Because I couldn't couldn't talk to any of them, obviously. (laughs) So on the level of a party where you just, like, have a really good time with your mates, no. But on the level of a kind of, like, pre-lapsarian, pre-pandemic glamour overload... Like, I sometimes think that was like, I would, I would like to go to there.
3: <laughs> <laughs> actually, I would like to change my answer um, on that basis and say that my favourite party was um, at Number 10 Downing Street. No, I'm not joking. It was actually at Number 10 Downing Street. It was um, sort of a celebration for people who'd been combating anti-Semitism, which sounds really depressing now that I say it. But there, there were lots of celebrities there. And for some reason, despite meeting celebrities all the time for my job and, you know, having to work with them and, and be quite cool about it, when I saw Luciana Berger, I just lost my shit completely. I don't know, don't know what it was about <laughs> Luciana Berger. The hair, she's got amazing hair. And I just really admire her. And I thought she was really brave. And I wanted to say how much she'd inspired me. And, I'm, and I'm, I'm really awkward. And I didn't know how to sort of get her attention or get into the conversation. And I panicked and I tapped her on the shoulder. <laughs> and she turned around and I just went, Oh, wow. <laughs> um, just faced with the full force of her magnificence. I just went, oh, wow. And she said, who are you? And I just went, I'm Sarah. And then I just gazed at her until uh, she sort of made an excuse and moved away. Amazing, um, amazing. Yeah. That was a great party. <laughs> I also met Larry the cat. Good time.
0: Next up, as Stephen Bush said, recently, Tory MPs have gone from looking at Johnson and saying, is this the best we can do, to looking at his likely successors and saying, is this the best we can do? The two ministers most likely to walk into number 10 over Bojo's rumpled corpse are the Chancellor, Rishi Sunak, and Brexit bulldog Liz Truss, the Foreign Secretary. So we thought it was time to take a closer look at the sparkling career of the honourable member for South West Norfolk. Naomi, Born in 1975, she had left-wing teacher parents who sent her to state school and sang Maggie, 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 out, out, out on marches. Uh, That's delicious detail for irony fans. Then she was president of the student Lib Dems at Oxford, where she wanted to abolish the monarchy, and according to a poster she put up at the Freshers' Fair, free the weed. Um, You are our Lib Dem expert. How common is this? A lot of people just sort of passing through (laughs) the Lib Dems en route to somewhere spicier.
1: Yes. In the 90s, the direction of travel was broadly the other way. You had Europhile conservatives coming over to join the Lib Dems. Um, There's there's, there's traffic in both directions. There there are former Lib Dems that have gone to Labour, former Lib Dems that have gone to the conservatives. Very few have a successful career, though, in the party that they've defected to. So she certainly bucked the trend on that one. But as you read all of that out about her... it did sort of make me pause and think, is she my sort of like evil twin or something? You know, I had lefty parents. I was president of my student Lib Dem society and I definitely do want to abolish the monarchy. I also, she did free the weed, but the campaign that I ran was, um, we were giving out t-shirts at the Freshers' Fair saying Lib Dems on drugs and then a leaflet about our legalizing cannabis policy.
0: Double meaning Um, of on there, I like it.
1: Yeah exactly and uh, and she trained as a management accountant as well and I'm I'm a fellow of the chartered institute of management accountants yeah i mean thankfully there are a few things we don't have in common i have never knowingly had an affair with a married conservative mp um <laughs> and i definitely didn't leave the liberal democrats to join the conservative party the the, the parallels it's like yeah maybe she's sort of like my, my bad who i could have been if things had been different in my life
0: there's a very good uh, profile in The Times by Charlotte Edwards, a very long profile that came out not long ago, where it does have people that remember her when she was younger, saying that she sort of has rewritten her background to make out that she was poorer than she was and that her parents were more left-wing than they were. Hmm. And that, in fact, they were quite middle-class and they're quite successful educators and they were kind of more sort of centre-left. Hmm. So I thought that's quite interesting that she's actually, rather than playing down that background, she sort of go, well, I'm different. <laughs> Um, So then PP at Oxford, works for Shell, think tank reform, lost two races very young, then gets elected in 2010 as a backbencher. She's co-author of one of our favourite books, Britannia Unchained, (laughs) uh, and founder of the Free Enterprise Group of Tory MPs. So if we want to understand her, Mm. uh, even though only one of her jobs so far, cabinet jobs has has been with the Treasury, is it really about neo-Thatcherite economics? Is that the meat of it? That's what made her kind of... Turn blue.
1: Uh, I think it's ambition. You know, most people leave the Lib Dems to have more successful careers elsewhere. So whether it's Nick Clegg going to Facebook or people thinking, oh these these guys haven't got a catch chance in hell of of getting many MPs. Um, you know, so I'll I'll tie my colours to a different mast um, and and hope to get elected. So I think before anything, it's just sort of pure naked ambition. And of all the various posts. Profiles of Liz Truss, the thing that comes out incredibly clearly is just how determined she is, how much she doesn't like losing, how much she wants to see herself as a winner. But for sure, Britannia Unchained was a very Eurosceptic book, very neoliberal in tone. It contains lines like, unlike those from the back streets of Bangalore, low-income students in Britain do not see study as a way out of poverty. She's very much sort of led the the charge on a lot of anti-wokers and stuff recently, um, and she champions the notion that, you know, young people are less discomforted by the precariousness of the modern job market than they are empowered by the choices and opportunities offered by the free market. And, you know, they're sort of a delivery eating, Uber riding, convenience junkies enabled by, you know, the the, the wonderful fruits of capitalism and technology. So there is obviously a, a sort of strong libertarian thread within her.
0: What, um, one of her daughters is called Liberty.
1: See, That's right. Yeah, yeah, yeah.
0: I'm surprised. No- unfortunately, the other one's called Francis and not like free enterprise or something. <laughs> <Poor> low tax. <laughs> Sound like a rapper.
1: Liberty low Francis, tax. free French. <laughs> <laughs>
0: um, in, in government, uh, she covered first childcare, then the environment under Cameron. As Lord Chancellor under Theresa May, she was accused of uh, sort of betraying judges when they were under fire for the Brexit press. Now, just a few months earlier, uh, as a loyal Cameron supporter, she was campaigning for Remain. And then she became very hardline. Uh, leave after the result. Which of these positions do you think was pure opportunism? You can say both.
2: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I don't know if opportunism's the word. Is it? It's more sort of just political convenience. You know, it's the same way. Mm. You know, we'd say the same thing about Theresa May with Remain. I think it was just like they just thought eh, Remain's going to win, and you know, I'm sort of quite senior. But- most people thought Remain was going to win. We've talked about this before. <laughs> you know, I don't want to break anything to you, but it turned out that that wasn't the case. What? And I, I know but the poll,
0: no, 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 Ian, if no. you look at the
2: polls. <laughs> 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 so, yeah, I, I just presu- I'll put it down to that. And then afterwards, very quickly, you saw like an awful lot of Tory Remainers just drift towards what was then the convenient position of leave. And very quickly the most radical version of Leave that they could find. So I think she, she was pretty well surrounded by people on a very similar journey
0: as she was on. And she was trade secretary for two years under Johnson, uh, which uh, you know did her uh, the power of good. Do you think that she was quite lucky in her timing that she came in after three years of negotiations and could therefore take credit for work that had been done before that, but then sort of left before the weaknesses of the deals could become apparent, that it was actually quite a nice couple of years to be doing that gig?
2: Yeah yeah, I mean it's a, it's a good position to have because um again we may have covered this before but there really are no Brexit benefits to be found. And one of the only areas in which you can and I don't want I'm breaking your mind right now. <laughs> I'm learning a lot this this episode. So it's all you know problem here problem there but one of the few things you can try and establish a positive narrative with is trade deals. Now Apart from the Australia deal, all of these deals are just copy and paste jobs from shit that we already had in the EU. But it and even the Australia one, I mean, from what we understand of it, it looks like we got our asses handed to us. But again, you don't get to see the Australia deal yet. You know, so it's all just chatter, chatter. And that very superficial assessment of success is pretty much the only area that there could be a positive. It, it can't be a coincidence that Tory members... Rate her highly, uh, rate Frost highly, because they're the two people that can try and show some kind of like, you know, Brexit aggression, some kind of counter narrative to just the drip feed of pain that you get everywhere else. So on that basis, yeah, it was a pretty sweet gig for her. No one really cares what's in those deals. And by the time that they start biting, for instance, by the time that we start hurting because of the Australia deal, not only her, but the person that follows her and the person that follows them will be long gone.
0: I'm sorry. She has 82 percent favorability with party members and she became I mean maybe one of these comedy shows that you wrote maybe you were part of the woke mob mocking her for her cheese rant in 2014
3: opening uh, up, up new pork markets who, who could forget <laughs> that that was amazing <laughs>
0: And then she got, then uh, in 2016, I think she was shredded by Eddie Mayer about switching from remainder to Brexit hardliner. And one thing I noticed in the profiles is because she's so very obsessed with politics and so very ambitious, that they keep emphasizing that she has like uh, a sense of humor and she sometimes drinks a glass of wine and she enjoys the music of George Michael and wham. Um, how does she come across to you? Does she come across as a boozy, fun-loving wham fan? (laughs)
3: You know, she comes across like someone who's been body snatched and is trying to replicate the emotions of an ordinary human being like she can't I, I mean I'm autistic so I'm always thinking about like what my face is doing and stuff so I mean you know pot kettle black but like you know during that infamous sort of cheese speech she would say <laughs> something and then you'd see her brain taking over going do a smile now do a smile <laughs> and then her mouth would sort of do something resembling a smile but she'd have this soulless sort of of demonic eyes she's terrifying i don't know i don't know what's going on in there it it, i I think she's just naked ambition in a human skin suit. I, I don't understand I, I don't understand. <laughs> I don't understand where the the favorability maybe they just see her as someone who's going to go to any lengths to get it done. Like maybe she'd be a fucking nightmare to play Monopoly with but apparently she is. Yeah.
0: But you know yeah no in the, in the in the Radio four profile <laughs> uh, her brother says that she would just like freak out if she lost a board game. she, of she was she swallowed the dice and
1: went to bed. Look <laughs>
3: I I th- have, <laughs> I have <laughs> stormed off after many a friendly Monopoly game, you know, taking half the pieces with me and refusing to come down until I get the, the piece. But well, well, you know... Maybe I, you I, two
0: could be our next Prime Minister. Yeah,
3: <laughs> I appreciate it, but like, you know, and I think anyone who is ruthless enough to leave the Lib Dems, because you know you have to phone them up, and I'm still a Lib Dem because, like, I can't do... I, I can't bring myself to phone the one remaining Lib Dem and be like, sorry, mate, I'm out. Like, that's <laughs> that's heartbreaking, but she... Off without a, without a backwards glance. Bye bye. Like so. Yeah, I, I just think she is. I I, I don't think she's fun. I don't think she's intentionally funny. I don't think she's funny in the way that she thinks that she's funny. I think she's definitely funny. Um, I think she's memeable. My worry is that that might neutralise her when she could actually be incredibly dangerous that's something that a mistake we've made with Boris Johnson in the past is that we've treated him like this bumbling buffoon teehee and we've all made fun of his silly hair we've made fun of the way he talks and we've sort of you know like party Boris ha 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 and we we actually we neutralized him we made him seem innocuous I worry about doing the same thing with with Liz Truss who I think given that she doesn't seem to have Any principles at all that that she is willing to stand by, she she will just go whichever way the wind is blowing. That's that's generally true of the Tories. They rule by opinion poll, and that's why Johnson's in trouble now because the opinion polls are turning on him, and that's all that they care about. I worry about what she could do if the public mood was behind it.
0: My favourite line in the profiles it was I won't name the writer. It was a less good profile, but it was painting a picture of Liz Truss uh, in the office. Working through papers, and she said, "She may have a glass of wine, but just the one. Yeah. Only her only addiction is politics." Yeah. Oh, I, I was like, "I love the I like the segue, and I also okay. just like the making point she's not an alcoholic, which think, uh, yeah. which just seemed like a strange point to make in para too it's quite hard to escape this notion, isn't it? That she's
2: just not very good. And, like, she's quite hidden away, I think, at the moment. And so there's not a lot of pressure. I mean, I think you, I think you can say the same for Rishi. was it in, exactly,
1: he buggered off yeah. Devon or something today, didn't he, to avoid Yeah, it, yeah, you? which,
2: to be fair, is quite a sensible move. <laughs> I wouldn't be seen anywhere near that shit show. It's really, like, no, nothing to do with me. But, I mean, she's not actually very good. And, like... The, the more you see of these contenders, you know, I would rather, as I said earlier, Boris Johnson just sits there as a, as a dead man walking. But if it does go to them, you do sort of think, no, you really are very beatable indeed. I'm not saying there won't okay. be, a, a the in, a leader, be a bump in the polls when they come in and you get a new leader, there'll be a bump in the polls. Absolutely, that'll happen. But ultimately, they're nothing like the kind of consummate danger That I think that we've been looking at for the last couple of years. So
0: she is interested in, I mean, she's good at politics to the extent I think she's the longest serving cabinet minister, Uh, you know, obviously putting together all her roles back to back. And she's worked with, worked well with three prime ministers. So she's obviously got kind of like now she's got strengths on that level.
2: Yeah, it's it's the TV that I think is the main problem here. I mean, really, when you, once you get to properly see her, because remember, you, never, you you look at these people, you never really see them for very often, right? As long as you even see Rishi Sunak is when he delivers the budget. The rest of the time, you just hear about him.
0: We saw a lot about Matt Hancock. Matt Hancock. We saw some <laughs> exciting footage <laughs> <We did. And laughs> of Matt Hancock.
2: Than we ever ever wanted to see. Like, I think when you get there, when you see her in front of a TV camera, I mean, the cheese the speech we laugh at, and, and I did, I mean, I probably watched that that speech 20 times I I never really recovered from it in a way (laughs) but like it is instructive right it's instructive about the fundamental underlying qualities that she has as a politician I don't think there's much there and I'm prepared to eat my words and I really hope I'm not sort of you know taking a risk by saying it
0: but like she just looks pretty
2: shit to me and thoroughly beat
0: well one thing that surprised me there was an interesting Paul Mason piece in the New Statesman Sunak is much more popular with voters than trusts less popular with members but Paul Mason thinks that Sunak would be easier for Labour to beat than either Truss or Pretty Patel or Penny Morden. He seems to think that there is a kind of there is a power that lies in the mini Thatchers. But he then didn't explain what he thought it was. Do you I mean, do you think that's true? If you were talk, if you were, you know, Keir Starmer and you were being entirely, you know, cynical about this and thinking, who would I want to be up against? Mm-hmm. Would you would it be Sunak or would it be Truss?
2: Oh, I would think he would definitely prefer to be up against Truss. Mm. I think Sunak is a much more, is, is a bigger threat. But I, I also don't think he's much of a threat. I have to say, and look, it's been a good week and I don't want to get overexcited yeah. and I don't want you guys to, to, to mean to be overly optimistic. I've got to say right now, you look at the Tory party, whether they stick or they shift or any of the options, they're looking pretty fucked out there right now. And if I was a Tory, I wouldn't know. I guess i would opt for something like Jeremy Hunt and just say, let's just start. Right, okay. Well, let's talk
1: about that because this is exactly what the Tories do do. So I know we're meant to be talking only about Liz Truss, but she may not be on the ballot paper because the Tories Tory. Right. And mm-hmm. uh, there's been rumours already that Hunt and Sunak have done a deal with each other, a non-aggression pact mm-hmm. to keep trust off the ballot paper. How do they do this? Well, of course, the selection process is not straight to the membership. One member, one vote. It's rounds and rounds of MP votes. And then it eventually goes to the membership. So let's go back to the 2001 Conservative leadership election. Some Ian Duncan Smith supporters, obviously, he's an arch-Brexiter, Eurosceptic fact Ken Clark Europhile Ken Clark in the last round in order to push Michael Portillo into third place and out of the race because they were gambling on the fact that Ian Duncan Smith would have a harder chance of beating Portillo in the membership vote because the membership tends to be much more Eurosceptic than they would to Ken Clark. So it's a bit like how Johnson supporters ensured Jeremy Hunt came second in the 2019 leadership election because they knew that a Remainer like Hunt stood very little chance of winning. So a pact with Hunt and Sunak this time round could be pretty probable as a route to keeping trust off the all-member ballot round because Team Sunak have seen those internal polls. They know how popular she is with the members. And obviously Hunt didn't didn't make it through last time. But Hunt has been amassing his campaign team for a long time. He's been sort of quietly building all of that and is certainly uh, going to give it another go.
0: Um, so there's a lot of things that, that, that could change here. There's even a chance someone, to, you know, like Gove could sort of sneak through the middle that you know, that the right would be represented by someone other than Truss, let's say, let's imagine that she is uh, the next prime minister. Although I do take your point, Sarah, about that that her past does suggest that she's uh, rather sort of goes which way the wind is blowing. But there also does, there does seem to be a kind of, there does seem to be a core sort of obsession with like free trade, low taxes, you know, patriotism, liberty, blah, blah. So there are certain themes that she's been coming back to uh, and certain, you know, notes she's been striking for quite a long time. And I wonder whether anybody here has an idea of what she, what her premiership, if it were to happen, would look like, how it might differ from what we have um, at the moment on a policy level.
1: Well, I mean, she loves Instagram. So I think her own Instagram will feature very, very heavily in her premiership. Um, And looking at her Instagram, which I do occasionally, not see that answer coming. um, uh, There's lots of flags, so we know she's very pro-flag. So I expect that we would see lots of flags. Um, It's going to be top Tory buzzwords, um, which they have done their, you know, best to undermine since 2016, liberty, but not if you want to actually vote or protest, free trade, but not with our largest trading partner, low taxes, but sorry, only for the already rich, patriotism, more flags and anthems, but less about actually looking after British people and and Britain's reputation abroad. She's flirted with the culture war, saying wokeness is a gift to our enemies. Last year, she said the best way to reach net zero was to deregulate and let the market sort it out, completely ignoring the fact that free market economics and consumer capitalism is a key driver of global warming in the first place. We know that she was influenced by people like Nigel Lawson and Ronald Reagan, so a dangerous person to be put in charge. And um, I say that uh, being old enough to have lived through the last two and a half years under Johnson,
0: so, Sarah, final question, knowing uh, what she's like and knowing that, for example, on stuff like the environment, that she would be worse, more traditionally, uh, you know, Tory right. Would you rather have Johnson stay?
3: I mean, <laughs> it's, a, it's a case of better the devil, you know, isn't it? Um, but I, I do think that, that yeah, I mean... <laughs> the planet is dying like not to be an alarmist but you know that we we are running out of time and we don't have time to fuck about with somebody who doesn't take that seriously um or takes that even less seriously than the people who aren't taking it that seriously at the moment we also know that she is she what she effectively wants fewer work, rights for workers um you know i think that it would be a very very bleak picture under trust and i don't think she is somebody that we should underestimate however i may you know i may come to regret the statement that might not age well i just don't think she's electable publicly i think ian you're absolutely right in that that she the the way that she comes across on camera once people actually see that they're like oh i do think you know she has obviously she has her libertarian principles i'm not sure they're really principles um so libertarianism is sort of a oxymoronic um, but starmer is also a little bit of a blank canvas and i think he tends to also manoeuvre around what he thinks is uh, you know popular what he you know he he pays attention to which way the wind is blowing and i think he's more principled but i also think i think that backbone is a little bit wavy as well so if it's sort of a, a battle of the voids starmer is the more electable um you know presentable void, void. <laughs> yeah
0: that's a good you could do you could write slogans for the Labour Party. Keir Starmer, <laughs> the electable voice. <laughs> it's near the end of the show, so it's time to take a quick look at the stories that aren't getting the attention they deserve in Under the Radar. Uh, Naomi, what do you have?
1: Uh, so my one is um, Pretty Patel's policing bill is going to be back in the Lords next week, uh, on Monday. The thing that's flying under the radar about it is the fact that if you marched with us for a second referendum, if you were one of the million people that came on a march, if you marched against the Iraq war, if you marched against Donald Trump, if you were part of the Women's March, well, if the bill goes through unamended, you won't be able to do those marches ever again because they are trying to ban them. They're trying to ban our right to protest outside Parliament. Specifically, they're going to increase the prohibited zone, meaning that we won't be able to march down Whitehall past Downing Street, and we won't be able to congregate in Parliament Square. So Best for Britain has been working with a group of cross-party peers to put down amendments um, to that bill. We've built a really great coalition Within uh the, the the various different parties, including with conservative peers in the House of Lords, to try and amend the bill on that front, so don 't get me wrong the bill 's awful i 'm not going to celebrate it if our amendments go through, but so does the whole bill amended but hopefully if we can at least get this done, then we can we can still. Make sure that we um, have our voices heard and our banners seen, and hold the, the government of the day to account when they do things that we don't agree with. And I think that's a really fundamental aspect of a healthy democracy—that you can have a civil society that can protest freely and fairly. And uh, yeah, so that—that's the story that I think probably has gone underreported, as so many stories will have gone underreported this week because of Partygate dominating the headlines.
0: Sarah, what's your story? It's
3: not really flown under the radar so much, um, but it's just an element of a story which tickled me this morning, which is uh, the ongoing Djokovic uh, saga, which uh, hopefully we did not receive him in any trade deal with Australia he said that his um, his agent ticked the wrong box on his form. And I just related hard as somebody who doesn't get nominated for any writing awards or anything. It, it's such a great go-to excuse every time. Ah, oh, my agent ticked the wrong box again. Like, my book's great. My agent ticked the wrong box. Brilliant. We'll be using that in the future forever. Thank you so much. The gift that keeps on giving.
0: <laughs> um, Ian.
2: David Jordan, BBC uh, director of editorial policy, has been in front of the House of Lords mm. Communication Committee this week, um, and said some things that I thought was just so intellectually and morally poverty stricken that I, cu- I kind of couldn't believe that the words are coming out of his mouth. He said, "You know, B- BBC's job is to represent all points of view. Um, everyone needs to know that their views are appropriately represented, including." He actually said the people that believe that the earth is flat. He said it's critical to the BBC that we represent all points of view and give them due weight, insane... We went on. Flat Earthers are not going to get as much space as people who believe the Earth is round. <laughs> that's very, that's good, Reassuring. Very fair of yeah, him. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. But occasionally, very occasionally, it may be appropriate to interview a flat Earther. And if, and here's a key point. And if a lot of people believe in flat Earth, we'd need to address
0: it more because the more people who believe in something, the more true it becomes. The, the more true
2: it comes. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. They essentially manifest physical reality, you know, into objective. Could, form. The
0: Earth is visibly flattening <laughs> as they. <laughs> As they believe. And then
2: it's sort of, it's... Because we've had this for a while, this sort of sense of the BBC adopting that posture of, you know, just let the two sides batter it out. We're kind of like a referee, you know, and essentially nothing is really true. There's just some sort of equation somewhere in the world as to the relative attributes of the number of people who believe different things. And you just sort of think, my my fucking god, man! And like, even after all this time, have you really not recognised the damage that you? Because I know what you, I know exactly what the counter would be. But oh, we're obviously not going to give them an easy ride. You know, he'll come on and we'll go, oh, but if it's flat, how come, you know, it's, we've, you know, how come it's a fucking globe? No, the answer is be, it doesn't matter, right? Because you give them credibility by having them on, by taking that approach, That instead you do not see your job as we have a public duty to inform people about objective reality. And right? I honestly, to see that coming from such a senior position at the BBC, to see it said in public on such an insane example, gives you an impression of, just how did, how how far their intellectual and ethical assessments of their editorial responsibilities have degenerated.
0: Yeah, I saw that as well. That was cool. The way that they also chose the example of the Flat Earthers, which you would think is the classic example of, well, you don't need to talk to those guys. <laughs> and he's like, <laughs> fun twist. Yes, you do. <laughs> well, that's the show. Thank you to Ian. Oh, thank you very much. Naomi.
1: Thank
3: you.
0: And our guest, Sarah Gibbs.
3: Thank you so much.
0: Her book, Drama Queen, is out now in paperback. Stay tuned for a preview of our extra bit exclusively for Patreons. You'll hear a preview after our theme song, Demon is a Monster, by Corner Shop, and a thanks to our latest backers.
1: Hello and a huge thank you from me to Paul Armstrong, John J.C. Clark, Rory Munro... Dominic Gisau, Jess Saw Carr, Mark Hay and Amy Hutenbos.
2: Uh, and it's a big hello from me to uh, Lee Johnston, Mark Butler, Katrin Stadler, Gene Shaw-Smith, John Hamill, Ian Elkin and James Kent.
0: And thanks from me to Gary Parker, James Shepherd, Jonathan Williamson, Tony Watapongo, Alex Rosenberg, Louise van der Heyden, and Gary. See you next time. Oh, God, what now? was presented by Doreen Linsky, with Naomi Smith and Ian Dunt. The group editor was Andrew Harrison. The lead producer was Jacob Jarvis. And the producers were Jacob Archbold, Jan Sofreniewicz and me, Alex Reese. Art direction by Mark Taylor. Oh God, what now? Is a Podmasters production. Now, in the extra bit for Patreon backers, the House of Lords is full of political superstars like Andrew Lloyd Webber, Alan Sugar and Ian Beefy Botham, bringing their enormous wisdom to the country's lawmaking. This week, we're going to give ourselves the power to ennoble anyone we like. And we're going to start with our guest, Sarah Gibbs. Who would you like to see in the Lords?
3: Uh... Ah, oh, you know I'm so down on humans at the moment just no humans no more humans no more heroes they all turn out to be disappointing I would like Larry to get some formal recognition for his years of public service oh, one of your
0: celebrity friends here. I see
3: I have met Larry in person <laughs> yeah. he is lovely um he let me pick him up and call him a very good boy he did not wriggle he didn't scratch me um he wasn't quite so keen when I wanted to put him in my handbag and walk away with him but other Otherwise, he was Nor a Lord Sugar. <laughs> um, so, yeah, Lord, Lord Larry. That's my pick.
0: And that was a trailer for the bonus bit in this week's podcast. If you'd like a little bit more Oh God, What Now? every week without ads and a day early, then sign up to back us on Patreon for as little as £2 a month. You'll also get our weekly minicast Oh God, What Else? out every Monday morning and exclusive to backers. Your support really does help us keep going. So thanks for listening and see you next week.